Were the citizens of the Luhansk, Donetsk, Zaforia, and Kherson subjected to pressure from the Russians to vote for rejoining the Federation in the recent referenda? What evidence is there that the attacks on the region over the last eight years were subjected by fascists in Ukraine? What are the reasons for Canada's wishing to confront Russia in Ukraine, and why are some Canadians protesting this move? Why is mainstream media failing to ask legitimate questions from the peace movement and other Canadians in its coverage of another brutal war being waged? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we continue our coverage of the war being fought in Ukraine with a particular emphasis on apparent distortion in the hands of Western media's coverage. In our first half hour, we speak to George Eliasson, a resident journalist in Luhansk region, talking about what he encountered during the recent referenda there, the experiences during the previous eight-year war, and the realities of the Kiev-based fascists continuing a 20-year war against Russia and Russian Ukraine. Then in our second half hour, we hear clips from Canadian ministers Christia Freeland and Anita Nanand about the reasons for their support for the military in Ukraine. We then hear from Winnipeg peace activist Glenn Michaelchuk about his views favoring peace negotiations ahead of war-making, the flawed context supplied by mainstream media, and efforts to build peace in the more war-hawkish position in which the liberal government is pushing all of us in this country. On this week's program... Media omissions, distortions, and exaggerations feeds the fuel for war against Russia. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of November 4th, 2022. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. At age 55, being healthy and fit, the only smoking thrombogenic gun is the multiple doses of COVID-19 vaccines plus his lifelong proclivity to clotting. I wonder if Sanders, his doctors or docu-series producers, ever read any papers, substacks, or tweets about blood clots after vaccination? Why did he not come out and admit he was wrong and recognize the injections had changed his life forever? Like so many, Sanders became quiet about vaccination with no more virtue signaling or public enthusiasm. Psychologists, will be studying and writing about what is going on in the mind of someone who had unbridled enthusiasm for an experimental government vaccine 
and then gets burned with an obvious complication, all in public view. That comes from the article, Arterial Shower of Blood Clots for Neon Dion, by Dr. Peter McCullough and John Leake, posted November 2nd, originally published on Courageous Discourse. In the post-hegemonic world, what role Africa can play, what could be the expectations, and how Russia can contribute in order to realize these expectations through the use of public diplomacy. At this, a new historical reawakening stage, Russia has to focus on building relations, both with substance and approach, and strategically engage with African institutions. Still analyzing the processes of creating and sustaining the new global order, it is necessary to invest in the youth. Obviously, we are talking about educating the youth. We are talking about knowledge and technology transfer and educational exchanges. And understandably, Russia lacks far behind the United States and its Western and European allies. That comes from the article, Sharing Russia's Multipolar Interest Through Youth Education in Sub-Saharan Africa by Kester Ken Klomega, posted November 3rd. Characteristically, when defining biopower as the ability to divide people into survivors and chosen to die, Foucault, 2003, page 62, used the term racism to describe achieved level of social normalization. During the pandemic, we observed direct racial sanitary segregation in the developed Western countries and now racist attitude is the base for biopolitics implemented within the geopolitical confrontation manifested in form of the energy crisis and war in Ukraine. It should convince us to deeper reflection on the thoughts of Giorgio Agamben, Achille Mbembe, and Judith Butler, which could be considered kind of prophecies for today and especially for tomorrow. Thinkers developing Foucault's concept focused primarily on death as a result of state decisions, necessarily referring to their most evident example, wars, but also slavery and the Holocaust. Therefore, questions have been asked not so much about bio, but rather necropolitics slash thanatopolitics as its ultimate emanation. Mbembe, 2019, page 71. That comes from the article, Necropolitics of the End Times, by Conrad Rikas, posted November 3rd. Petraeus considers the time frame crucial. It is now or never to save Zelensky and his regime peppered with patriots, quote-unquote, paying tribute to the genocidal mass murderer, Stepan Bondera, who collaborated with real Nazis during WW2 and massacred hundreds of thousands of Jews, Poles, Roma, and other subhumans. The usual war hawks in the White House, the Pentagon, the CIA, and on the Hill probably assume that a quiescent American electorate 
will buy the argument that the commitment of U.S. forces in Ukraine without a declaration of war could facilitate a face-saving deal with Moscow. McGregor believes it is, quote, dangerous and stupid to think so, and Americans should reject this notion, but it's not unreasonable to assume this deluded thinking is prevalent inside the Beltway, unquote. The American public is presently distracted by a number of issues, most dealing with inflation and a deteriorating economy, and while they may feel sympathy for the Ukrainians, largely unknowing of their history and the threat the neo-Nazis posed to ethnic Russians in Ukraine, but direct military intervention is certainly not high on the list of things they want the government to address. That comes from the article, Former CIA Boss Petraeus Demands U.S. Forces Enter the Fight in Ukraine by Kurt Nemo, posted November 3rd, originally published on the author's blog site, Kurt Nemo on Geopolitics. Top infrastructure for Ukrainian special forces and British advisors is based in Odessa and Nikolaev. Now there's no question these will be destroyed. Even with the grain deal, in theory, back on track, it is hopeless to expect Kiev to abide by any agreements. After all, every major decision is taken either by Washington or by the Brits at NATO. Just like bombing the Crimea Bridge and then the Nord Streams, attacking the Black Sea Fleet was designed as a serious provocation. That comes from the article, No Pain, No Grain, Putin's Black Sea Comeback, by Pepe Escobar, posted November 3rd, originally published on The Cradle. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In late September, the four regions closest to Russia were allowed to vote in a referendum to rejoin the Russian Federation. The U.S., Canada, and the NATO countries, and Ukraine itself, judged these referenda as a sham, resembling the Crimean referendum of 2014. Nevertheless, there are other details surrounding these areas, which include sizable Russian-speaking populations that were under attack from Kiev for the past eight years. Over 14,000 people died in that period. You thought it would be a good idea to have a correspondent in the area comment on the referenda and on the general attitudes of the people in the area. George Eliasson is an American journalist based in Donbass. He's been interviewed by and provided analysis for RT, the BBC, and Press TV. His articles have been published in the Security Assistance Monitor, Washington's blog, OPED News, the Saker, and Global Research, among others. He joins us from the Luhansk Republic. Looking around your community, what kind of a reaction did you see towards the joining the uh, referendum to Russia recently? Um, around the community, I, I actually went to the referendum for five towns. Um, it Everybody has been looking forward to this for a long time. And 
it's um it's for them it's like coming home and you have to understand that a hundred years ago this was russia these were russian people most of ukraine was russia filled with russian people um it was lenin that created the ukrainian state and it took until the 30s and 40s for people to get used to be called ukrainian um right now is the first time in the last almost nine years people have the a reason to feel safer because we've been under attack that long so all the way around people are really happy about it what can you say to to buttress the argument that people really and weren't voting as if they had russian guns to their heads <laughs> well it's it's like the um 2019 elections for the president in both republics people came out in mass to vote even under shelling and they did that this time the back then the um gosh the turnout was like 97% i was uh i monitored the election back then right now you couldn't keep people from voting they were taking the ballots to people's homes because Ukraine was trying to attack people in voting centers. They actually shot down over 100 missiles, 100 HIMAR missiles, plus rockets, etc. Um, during the referendum. They needed the military at those places in case there was an attack, terrorist or otherwise. So everybody looked at it as positive. Nobody here is scared of the military. And all these guys were local. Um, they used, well, in LNR, they used the LNR army. In DNR, they used the DNR army to do that. And it was strictly protective. Um, from what I saw this time, again, they didn't, harass anybody they didn't actually talk to anybody they were just protecting um standing guard making sure no one did anything uh, you know tried to hurt anybody that was it there was nothing threatening about them during the eight-year offensive is there an example of an incident that sticks out in people's minds either undermining russia or ukraine aggression in the donbass i went to um three mass grave uncoverings and it is the saddest thing to see you, you see the remains of people um dug up that were killed eight years ago and in some cases they were stacked on top of each other and in one of the layers is a small child um there were i went to three of these and this was all Ukraine's doing, um, attacking and shelling civilians. It's, it's not one or two, it's many. Ukraine, during this whole time, um, they haven't attacked the army as much. They've been attacking apartment complexes, places where people um, gather markets during busy days where people will be shopping 
And these are open air markets, um, like a bazaar. Um, think of it like a farmer's market or a flea market, people walking around. That's what Kiev's been attacking. If you want to look at an example of um, what Kiev's done um, that's been in the news, look at Bucha. Now, you see pictures upon pictures of these people that were shot down, and right next to them is Russian humanitarian aid packages. Why would the Russian army give people humanitarian aid packages, shoot them, and then leave the evidence that they were dealing with them? And these are people that had white armbands on, you know, which means they're neutral. They don't want to be bothered. You know, you wave the white flag, it means, you know, I surrender or I'm not fighting. Kiev, it was specifically Ukraine's Azov Battalion that did that. In Donbass, the atrocities have just been mounting over the years. Um, if you look at the Krematorsk train station, now Ukraine says, well, Russia did a rocket attack, a missile attack there. Well, they found the, a section of the, one of the missiles that had the serial numbers on it, and it came directly out of the Ukraine stockpiles. They have serial numbers from missiles from different cities, and they're almost consecutive in numbers. They came out of Ukrainian stockpiles. Th these are known um, inventories. And so they've been doing this and blaming it on Russia, blaming it on Donetsk, blaming it on, on Lugansk. And, and quite frankly, it, it's a shame. Um, it's part of the information war that they're getting away, getting away with it. And it, it doesn't get any more complicated than that. From your vantage point, is there any evidence available to the crowds that the Ukraine forces are contributing to some, if not all, war crimes in the form of false flags? If you're looking at shelling or rockets, um, the impact craters show the direction they're coming from. It's, it's very easy to, to figure it out. And um, where these groups are on a, on a map, that's known because that's... That's just military stuff, okay? They need to know. So, you know, let's say at Krematorsk, um, they fire the, the missile from 20 miles. Well, they have the direction because of impact, all right? So they know the specific direction the rocket came from, and you <laughs> take that line out, it's just geometry to the next firing position, whoever's there is the person is the person or group that did it. Um, Mariupol, they did this during the uh, rocket attack there. Everybody was saying that Donetsk attacked Mariupol. It was a Russian section of the city that got attacked. It was people that supported um, Donetsk and wanted to get Azov Battalion to, to leave. Well, the actual attack was filmed on security cameras at apartment buildings. It showed the definite direction. You could see them coming in. 
And uh, the angle of the dangle, the firing line, actually came from a Ukrainian position. It was what, probably close to our, close to, I'd say 120 degrees away from the nearest um, DNR position, if I remember correctly. This is just what they do. You spoke of how, for Kiev, this would not be a short-term endeavor, but one that is intended to play out over a long period of time. Could you explain that? Well, Kiev doesn't plan on winning the war. Now, imagine going into a war knowing you're going to lose it, and you're okay with that. You're good with that. The reason why is they want this to be a generational war. Kiev is using this as a way to cleanse all ethnic Russians out of Ukraine. Um, the way they look at it now, as I said, 100 years ago, all of Ukraine, all the way over to West Ukraine, what was called Galicia, were Russians. So they're looking at one, ethnicity. Two, the big one is um, do you honor your grandparents that the Germans killed in World War II or fought against the Germans. They want those people gone. Kiev is following Galician lines and Galician politics. They want to be free to honor the uh, Waffen-SS Galician, um, what is it, the first, uh, first Grenadier or 14th Grenadier SS Galician. They don't want Soviet soldiers or Soviet battalions or anything that glorifies the Soviet Union to exist. And so all these people have to be rooted out. Right now, they're um, inscripting them and throwing them against the wall on the front lines. No training. Here's a gun, 10 bullets, you know, go get killed. And they're actually calling out the population this way. It's just sick. But it's happening, and it's happening now. Um, This consequence, over time, now they lose the war, they begin a guerrilla war. You have three-year-olds right now that are being brought up to hate anything Russian. So they grow up. It is in the best political interest of the country if they want to stay nationalist to go into the next generation fighting because there won't be any um, people with Russian heritage or claim a Russian heritage left in the country. They'll be totally free to be nationalists. They're actually cosmopolitan fascists politically. And they want every mind. They don't care if there's 50 people left in Ukraine. At least they're all Ukrainian fascists. And that's the goal. Make it the whole country like-minded. No diversity. So for them, it's worthwhile. When it comes to the uh, attacks on on, uh, your region, and other uh, Donbass. Uh, what what is the, the indications that it's fascists or, or the Nazis that are driving force behind that? As 
Okay, if I understood the question right, you're asking, what's the indication that there are fascists running this? That was the question? Yes. Okay, um, if we go back to um, pre-1991, um, the government of Ukraine was in the diaspora. It was the government of Ukraine in exile. Now, when the Soviet Union um, fell apart, Ukraine pulled out of it. They had to recognize Ukraine. They really didn't want to, but the United States did. Um, so these and these, this government was a second generation from World War II. They were um, OUN Melnik. That was the what the government was. So they called um, Gravyuk. They said, "Look." We'll give you the symbols of state, the power of state, we'll back you, we'll be your lobby in the US and around the world, but you're going to sign a contract that this will be a nationalist state based on the government of Simon Petlura, 1917, 1918. Kravchuk agreed, he's from Galician stock. Um, so they signed a contract that the government would be a nationalist government. Every leader in Kiev signs on to this nationalism. Now, the first um, going up to the Orange Revolution, the diaspora really wasn't happy because all these people were doing was grabbing money. They privatized everything and they were taking over everything and becoming very rich, but not developing a nationalist country. Well, they started building up the, the diaspora leaders took over the kids groups. And this goes into what I mean about a 20 year war. From the Orange Revolution forward to Maidan, they took over the kids groups and they raised up these groups to be nationalists, real nationalists, like 1930s nationalists. And by the, when they were ready for Maidan, they unleashed them on the world. That was that diaspora. One of them, uh, her name is Slava Stetsko. Um, she was, her husband was actually the guy that declared Ukraine a sovereign country in 1941 in Lviv, right after he had two pogroms, killed a bunch of Jews. And Adolf Hitler said no. His wife became one of the leaders of the brand new Ukraine in 1991. Her bodyguard is a guy you might be familiar with. Uh, he was the leader of Pravi Sector, Dmitry Yaros. He learned his politics directly from a World War II monster. And you have to bear in mind that this woman and the leaders around her were responsible for over 11 million murders during World War II. And in an interview, she said she never lost a night of sleep over anything. Maidan happened. And it was those people that took over. Um, if you look at the UCCA, the Ukrainian Congressional Committee of America, and the UWC, Ukrainian World Congress in Canada, um, they have over 20 million people in the diaspora, 
and they support it um, very healthily. Um, just one business that was geared toward freeing Ukraine is worth over 110 billion. That was in 2014. So they set all this up to pump money in to do just this and set up 1930s nationalism in 2014 going forward. Ukraine, Ukrainians never had the option um, to be asked about this because they wouldn't have chosen it. Native Ukrainians rejected this outright, but if these guys had the guns, they had the tanks, they had the military. Donbass was the only group of people that really stood up to it on their own all this time. Thanks, George. I've appreciated talking to you. Uh, thanks for discussing these issues with us. It's great talking to you, too. Um, anytime you, you want to talk, just give a yell, Michael. We've been speaking with George Eliasson, an American journalist based in Donbass. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. On Friday, October 28th, Two federal ministers in Canada, Christia Freeland, the finance minister who is also of Ukrainian background, and Anita Anand, the minister of national defense, were present in the city of Winnipeg, appearing as speakers at the 27th Congress of Ukrainian Canadians, a session forged by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. In separate back-to-back segments, they spoke of the need, from their perspective, to reinforce Canada's continued support to Ukraine as it defends itself against Russia's aggression. Here are clips of what they said at the Congress meeting, starting with Christia Freeland and then followed by Anita Anand, recorded by myself for radio station CKUW. I really want to emphasize that Canada's support for Ukraine is first and foremost because it is in Canada's national interest to support Ukraine. We recognize that the battlefield in the world today between democracy and dictatorship is in Ukraine. Ukrainians are fighting for all of us, for all democracies. They're doing it with extreme resilience, with extreme courage, with extreme strategic brilliance. But I really want to emphasize um, that this really is a fight where all of us must support Ukraine because Ukraine is fighting for our bodies. And it's very important to recognize that. Um, I think his goals were to suppress and oppress Ukraine. But his goals were even larger than that. I think he wanted to show not only that Ukraine could be brought to heel, but that liberal democracy in the world was too weak and too lacking in self-confidence to support Ukraine. And I think he also wanted to show you, I, I think his was really a very revisionist effort 
to return the world to the 19th century, to a sort of age of Metternich, might makes right, game of the great powers kind of world. Um, he wanted first and foremost to abolish the prohibition that Romano referred to, um, that we tried to establish after the Second World War, and has held pretty solidly for the past three decades, that one internationally recognized sovereign state may not invade another. Those were Putin's objectives. And it is tremendously important that he not succeed. Of course, it's a life and death struggle for Ukraine, and I think President Zelensky put it extremely well in his speech to the British House of Commons when he said, to be or not to be, that is the question we face. He has understood, and the people of Ukraine have understood that this is an existential struggle. But even though that fight is very far away from us here in beautiful, sunny Winnipeg, we should make no mistake that values that are just as important to us, and not just values, but international rules and principles, are at stake for us as well. And that is why, as the Prime Minister said earlier today, Putin must fail. And let me also say, that's why Ukraine has to win. Russia's illegal invasion of Ukraine is entering its ninth month. In recent months, we have heard that the armed forces of Ukraine have made remarkable progress, reclaiming Ukrainian territory, pushing back Russian forces in the north, in the east, and in the south. And when I am being briefed, that is the positive that I hear the gains that Ukrainians are making every day. Speaking to that resilience, speaking to that courage, speaking to that bravery. And the armed forces of Ukraine must be commended for this resilience in the battle of their lives. Now, Ukraine has emphasized to its partners, and indeed my friend Minister Resnikov has emphasized to me directly, that these successes were possible through the military equipment and assistance provided by Canada and our allies and the broader partnership, all in support of a sovereign, secure, and stable Ukraine. Canada is providing significant and comprehensive military support to Ukraine and has done so since the beginning. This includes a commitment of over $600 million in military aid that we've already committed to Ukraine since Putin's further invasion in February. M777 howitzers, artillery ammunition, anti-tank weapon systems, over 60 high-resolution drone cameras, as well as 39 armored combat support vehicles and other commercial pattern vehicles, both of which were brand new, coming right off the line, built right here in Canada, because we want to send the very best equipment to Ukraine in its time of need. And we didn't just send the brand new vehicles, we also made sure to have 
training and maintenance contracts embedded in the purchase for new vehicles because we know that these vehicles may be damaged in the course of battle and we want to be there to support the military when these vehicles need to be repaired. The Canadian Armed Forces have trained over 33,000 Ukrainian troops, including 2,000 members of the Ukrainian National Guard. In Canada, we have politicians and the group Ukrainian Canadian Congress speaking of the need to stand with Ukraine. There's support for refugees fleeing, but the government also applauds themselves for sending weapons, for training Ukrainian troops and sending vast quantities of money to help the soldiers against aggression from Russia. Yet, a small group of activists were engaged in a protest outside their annual Congress at which government ministers Christia Freeland and Anita Anand were present to speak. I wanted to get more information about the group and their beef with the government and what alternatives they think the government should be pursuing. One of those activists was Glenn Michaelchuk. He's chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg and president of the Winnipeg branch of the Association of United Ukrainian Canadians. Glenn, uh, I was just wondering, could you give us details about the protest last weekend and what exactly were you protesting? The uh, protest last week was organized by Peace Alliance Winnipeg, and it was to coincide and did coincide with the appearance of Anita Anan and Krista Freeland at the convention of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. And specifically, we were uh, protesting the issue of Canada's, Canada's war in Ukraine. Uh, that's what we have begun to label it as Canada's war in Ukraine. Um, for the reasons you said that Canada has been... Uh, providing weapons uh, rather than trying to de-escalate the situation and work for peace in Ukraine. Uh, the fact that they were addressing the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress <clears throat> is not a surprise because the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is a friendly audience for wanting to hear about uh, pursuing the war in Ukraine. And indeed, between the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress and the Canadian government, they have been instrumental in uh, escalating uh, Canada's role in the war and preventing Canada from playing a role for peace. So uh, how, there were how, how about how many of you and, and what were you doing? Were you handing out leaflets? Did you have a banner? We had a banner that said uh, abolish NATO for world peace, because really uh, this war in Ukraine is a proxy war that NATO is is fighting through Ukraine to uh, destabilize Russia, to train um put Russia on the defensive. Uh, so we had a large banner that said abolish NATO for world peace. We had uh, placards calling for peace in Ukraine and some more general placards calling for um, just an end to war and an end to NATO. Uh, there were about 10 of us uh, protesting there. It was a good reaction from the street. Uh, we were there for about an hour. Okay. And uh, did you get any resistance from officers or security people? No, uh, we did uh, for a period of time uh, protest right in front of the doors of the, it was the Delta Hotel in Winnipeg. 
Uh, but they, you know, just politely asked us to move and we did. Uh, we just moved about 20 feet uh, onto the uh, city sidewalk. So still clearly visible to anyone coming and going. Um, we didn't we didn't uh, see Krista Freeland or Anita Anon. They were probably in there much earlier. So were you protesting just the politicians and, and the, the, the war Canada's war or, or was there a, a protest against the UCC itself? Uh, we were protesting the uh, actions of the Canadian government in the whole war in Ukraine, both before the outbreak of uh, war on February 24th and since then. So it was not targeted directly against the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, but the fact can't be uh, ignored that the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress uh, has played a role in uh, urging the Canadian government to escalate its, its war in Ukraine. Okay. Uh, you claim that the politicians consistently are backing war as opposed to preventing it, you, it through peace negotiations. But, but Russia did initiate the move in February. Ukraine has a right to protect themselves and, and Canada wants to help their Ukrainian friends to protect themselves. So what's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with what's happened in Ukraine is that the war that uh, began on uh, February 24th could have been averted, uh, but for actions of NATO and the collaboration of the Ukrainian government in those actions to provoke the situation. So while it's true that uh, Russia initiated military action on February 24th, and indeed the whole situation with, uh, with the war in Ukraine um, really goes back to 2014 and the civil war there. So the war on February 24th has to be, that began on February 24th, has to be understood in, in a broader context of events prior to uh, that could have averted war. Hmm. Well, could you give me examples of, uh, you say, peace negotiations uh, before the war uh, and during the war that, that Canada could have pursued, but instead they promoted war? Certainly. Uh, well, so before, before uh, war broke out uh, on February 24th, there was uh, an effort that was uh, a combined effort of Germany and France uh, to implement the Minsk agreements. The Minsk agreements were agreed to by Ukraine and Russia, and well, more, more importantly, the uh, separatist regions of uh, the Donbass, because there had been a civil war from 2014 on, as uh, parts of Eastern Ukraine uh, wanted to separate from Ukraine as they saw Ukraine moving more and more towards the European Union. But more dangerously, they saw the rise of uh, these neo-Nazi groups and neo-Nazi influence in the Ukrainian government. Uh, so the Minsk agreements certainly were a framework for peace within Ukraine, uh, a, a way to settle the civil war, a way to keep the Eastern regions within Ukraine uh, and and those those agreements were never implemented. And people might remember that in the January, there was a lot of diplomacy on the part of Germany and France to try and um, implement those agreements, agreements, the Minsk agreements. That failed. Uh, that failed, I think, because uh, the United States didn't want it to succeed and prevented Ukraine from entering into those kind of agreements. There is some evidence to that effect. 
that when President Zelensky said uh, he was interested in signing in implementing the Minsk agreements, he received tremendous pushback uh, from these ultra nationalists within Ukraine. And of course, subsequent to the war, even in the first weeks when Russian incursion into Ukraine was uh, very limited, there were peace negotiations or negotiations for at least a ceasefire and to find uh, stability and some peace. And uh, there has been attempts, even in this more severe period of the war, this more escalating period of the war by Turkey and other countries to bring uh, the two two sides together. And there is credible evidence as to Boris Johnson uh, delivering a message to Ukraine, uh, to President Zelensky, when when he, President Zelensky, was interested in pursuing these that the West would not would not uh, tolerate him doing that. Mm. Yeah, so it seems like certain Western powers are are blocking uh, peace negotiations and and ceasefires that that Russia and Ukraine might even agree to. But I think a problem with the uh, the view picture that some fellow Canadians might seek see it as a, a ploy for further invasion. I mean, I'm I, I'm reminded of the Munich Agreement. In 1938, when the Sudetenland was handed over to Germany by the European major powers only to see more of the Czech Republic invaded and annexed in March of 1939. So many of these people, including Christian Freeland, seem to be comparing Putin to Adolf Hitler. If there is a a peace agreement, uh, perhaps involving annexation of some sort, some part of Ukraine, they could use it as a ploy to to conquer more of Ukraine or, or Finland or possibly even Canada, what what do you see, or what do you say to counter those sorts of arguments about Putin not being a fellow you can trust? Well, anyone who uh, has looked at the situation can see that um, if you just go back uh, to this time last year, there was no danger of any of this happening, of some kind of uh, breakup of Ukraine. Um, of course, the... Uh, Peoples of the Donetsk and Luhansk region have since uh, the war broke out in uh, after February 24th and its escalation have since uh, taken a referendum vote and want to uh, have formally seceded from Ukraine. But if you go back one year, uh, none of this existed. If you go back several years, uh, the situation is even more dramatically different. First of all, you had the Minsk agreements uh, to try and end the war, that Ukraine didn't implement them is the responsibility of Ukraine. Um, If you go back a couple of years ago, the relationship between the EU and Russia was entirely different. Uh, There was close economic and political cooperation. Uh, Both the EU and Russia were very concerned about finding stability, uh, particularly uh, uh, economic stability, but also military security for Europe. Um, And to that end, both Russia and, and the European Union we're partners in that. So why has this changed so dramatically? It's because of this war. And so who's who's profiting and who's benefiting from this war? I would put it that it's the United States and NATO. So these any t- attempts to equate this to uh, the events leading up to World War II is completely historically inaccurate in terms of what the present condition was, because if there was a possibility to avert all of this, and it wasn't taken. I would just add that, you know, the the question of European security since the fall of uh, the Soviet Union, so that's around 1990, is paralleling the question of European security following the Second World War, when again there was an opportunity 
and it was um, it was it was lost. It was lost because of the formation of NATO. Hmm. You also have claimed that to have been blocked from making points about peaceful, uh, as opposed to war making initiatives, being thwarted in the past, way back in January before the Russian military mobilization happened. Could, could you give me a specific example of what you mean? Well, I can give you an example about what Canada didn't do in January. Canada didn't uh, support the diplomatic initiatives being taken in Europe, uh, primarily by the French and, and Germans, but others as well. Uh, in Canada, what we saw was a ramping up for the uh, war that would come. Uh, you had the statements of Krista Freeland to the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress at the end of January, uh, where she said that this was a battle of authoritarianism versus democracy and that Ukraine would be the battleground. Now, this is end of January, uh, one month before war broke out. So that was the dialogue in Canada. It was the dialogue in the mainstream media. It was the dialogue in Parliament. And if you take a look at the take note debate that was held at the end of January in Parliament, uh, all but a few MPs, members of Parliament, uh, fell in line uh, with this um, with this uh, narrative about having to confront Russia. I would just add that uh, that uh, when Christopher Freeland spoke to the UCC, it was on a, a Zoom town hall organized by the Ukrainian Canadian Congress and Liberal MPs. And also on that call was Melanie Jolie. Uh, she had just returned from Europe. She paid only lip service to the question of the Minsk Agreement. Her whole message was the same as Krista Freeland's. We're going to confront Russia. We're going to do it with weapons. We're going to do it with boots on the ground. Yeah. So Canada was not an honest player in terms of peace for Ukraine. And did you attempt to, uh, like when they had a question and answer period, in the the the, uh, the meeting, the Zoom meeting that you had with uh, them, um, I, did you did they not allow or any of those sorts of questions to uh, air? Or I mean, did you put any such such questions to them? There uh, was no opportunity. Well, there was an opportunity to submit questions uh, via chat. The chat was not visible, uh, as I recall, uh, and. No, the only people who were speaking on the call were the panel, which was comprised of leading representatives of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress, uh, Melanie Jolie and Krista um, Freeland. So everything was very heavily filtered and uh, to present a particular narrative. Uh, I did. I did raise questions about the Minsk agreements, but they were never addressed by uh, Melanie Jolie. Okay, well... Do you have any complaints to share then about how the media, the mainstream media, does not seem to be asking any of these sorts of questions to the government? The mainstream media has uh, failed Canadians in terms of doing responsible journalism uh, to explain any of these uh, background issues to the war. So the mainstream media has consistently and deliberately failed. Uh, to present any any other opinions other than the opinions that are being coming from the Canadian government and the likes of the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress. And it's to the detriment of Canadians who are misinformed about this war, the reasons for it, the progress of the war. I would think that most people believe, 
according to what they see, that Ukraine is about to win this war. I mean, we will see. The um, There's very substantive reports from a host of very credible people to suggest that the, the war is not going in the interests of Ukraine. But more importantly, there's also a host of credible people who explain have explained that the basis of this war is little more than uh, a NATO proxy war with Russia. Mm. Now, this is not the kind of attitude Canadians are used to hearing from their government. I mean, we see ourselves as rational brokers for peace, as opposed to the, the bull in a china shop approach uh, of the Americans. Uh, peace keep, Canadians are peacekeepers, Americans are war makers, this sort of thing. I mean, you remember, uh, you know, the way, uh, you, you know, in, in terms of Iraq, I mean, Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin didn't want to seem, you know, too much in favor of, of, of going in ourselves. And yet, as, as the person speaking with Minister Freeland at the Congress mentioned, at the speech she gave at the Brookings Institute uh, three weeks ago, she said the following, the sunny days are over. Bloody history is back. Now, how do you make sense of the, the tone and implications of this more hawkish angle being pursued by Canadians, which is unique compared to past wars, such as in Vietnam and Iraq? The tone and the implications are very dangerous for Canadians. It's certainly an indication in everything we've seen that uh, Canada as part of the Western Alliance, uh, which really means the NATO alliance, uh, dominated by the U.S., is ramping up for war or major confrontations. And of course, the two biggest powers that uh, uh, the NATO and Western Alliance face are Russia and China. So it indicates that uh, that has uh, come to the front burner, if you like. But in terms of Canada's historic role, Canada has played actually a very dirty role in the world, whether it's protecting mining interests in various parts of the world, or if it's just been its, its, its support for anti-people uh, governments in various countries, prime one being uh, Canada's uh, nefarious role in Haiti. Now, Canada actually insisted the United States in removing an elected leader, uh, Jean-Paul Aristide, from Haiti forcefully. Uh, and then there's been Canada's uh, role with Venezuela and its opposition to the elected government in Venezuela, actually trying to organize regime change in Venezuela. Uh, and it goes on and on throughout Central America and elsewhere. Uh, Canada's role in the, uh, in the Pacific region, uh, trying to confront China uh, over the question of uh, Taiwan. So a very serious situation. Canadians should be alert to it. Canadians should organize against it. Canadians should demand more of their politicians. And Canadians should demand that their politicians actually take stands uh, opposing this. Yes, one more question. I mean, for peace activists faced with the government talking the talk of war, one should expect them to walk the walk in terms of military spending, money toward building fighter jets, armed vehicles, training troops, and so on. This at a time when we endure difficult financial times, inflation, there's climate change, and, and we haven't even mentioned how many people see the current situation as rivaling the Cuban Missile Crisis in terms of the threat of a nuclear exchange. What kinds of strategies are you in the peace movement now considering to, to counter these national developments of war making? Well, there's been a resurgence in the peace movement. The peace movement has to get better organized. 
Uh, it has to become more, more cohesive. Uh, it has to become uh, more national in scope in terms of coordinated national actions to oppose this. Uh, there's been very good actions by the Canadian uh, peace movement in that regard, this national coordination on the question of opposing fighter jet purchase. Uh, purchase. Uh, but um, uh, really, we our work is cut out for us in, in terms of raising this profile amongst Canadians and raising this profile amongst um, members of parliament who are being cowed down. I mean, there are good members of parliament, don't get me wrong, who have good conscience but are being cowed down by the narratives, uh, by these Cold War narratives, uh, by this atmosphere and uh, McCarthyism. And so we have our work cut out for us to build a real broad democratic movement uh, that is against war. Uh, it's gonna take all of us. It's gonna take people of courage who are in parliament. Um, and it's gonna take you know, um, commitment for some parties or the election of anti-war uh, MPs or an anti-war party, if one uh, does exist in Canada. Glenn, it's been good speaking to you. Thanks so much for coming on the program. Thank you, as always, Michael. That was Glenn Michaelchuk, Chair of Peace Alliance Winnipeg, also President of the Winnipeg branch of the Association of United Ukrainian Canadians, speaking in Winnipeg. I offered the Ukrainian Canadian Congress the opportunity to appear on this show to air their perspective. They did not, as of this episode is being produced, offer any response. On the topic of media, I draw attention to the fact that the representatives of the Ukrainian Canadian Congress hosting the two Canadian federal ministers tried to deny me access to the event. And the ministers, in spite of showing evidence I was a journalist with CKUW. Given this and the important questions I had to ask about the government's warlike stance, among other concerns I have with them, I thought it was important to register a complaint through the radio station. I will keep you abreast of how this situation develops. Next week's show is first released on Remembrance Day. I plan to have on the show perspectives of the Second World War, including the histories of some of the Allied forces in Ukraine allied with the Nazis. Don't miss it. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for joining us.